Whether pilgrimage is about a sacred place, the historical past, or just my individual walk. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Cain in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg, and this is the third and final part of what I'm calling the Summer of Struggle for this year, 2016. And it's come from a couple of different angles that I want to kind of describe as I begin to answer this last of the three questions. But first, by way of introduction, for anyone who might be new, and I think I probably did this around the same time a year ago, as Walk the Earth got close to a 30th episode and was finding itself uh, in front of a brand new audience for the very first time. That was one year ago. So I'll share some of the same information now that I shared back then. I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com, IC being the initials for the Inappropriate Conversations podcast, the other podcast that shares the feed with Walk the Earth. In addition to that, on Twitter, I'm IC underscore Greg, and there are Facebook pages for both Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations that you can find there to interact on Facebook with these two podcasts on their own pages www.inappropriateconversations.org is the website, and along the header of that website is a link to uh, the About page for Inappropriate Conversations, but also an About page for Walk the Earth. That includes a link to a category index that brings all of the Walk the Earth podcasts together in one directory. There also is an essay there called Christianity. It's actually the link is to Christianity 201, Time for Solid Food, which, if nothing else, gives people a sense of kind of where I stand from the perspective of my theology. It's very much a Jesus-focused theology. Having said that, this summer of struggle has had as much to do with theism as a whole as it has with Christianity in particular. And Walk the Earth is a podcast coming from a Christian perspective, a Protestant Christian perspective, makes that a little bit noteworthy. So I'll make a quick note of it now. As I mentioned in the very first episode of Walk the Earth, the point of the podcast was to document some of the questions that I was facing as my family moved from one church to another, and in fact, as it played out, one denomination to another. And I'll be honest, some of the questions, depending on how the answers had gone, could have led us to be in a state of perpetual search, or even potentially to give up the search altogether. That's what the question and answer within Walk the Earth is really all about. Now, for more than a year, a couple of years now, uh, we have found another church home. And initially that raised some questions about just getting used to the differences, either in uh, sacraments or practices or rituals or theology within that new church and, and a new denomination. But here lately, I've been dealing with more of a broader, bigger picture set of struggles. The three episodes this summer, uh, Walk the Earth's Summer of Struggle, have focused upon fasting, prayer, and this week I'm going to look at pilgrimage. And for anyone who's you know familiar with world religion and world theism in particular, some of this might sound just a little bit familiar, because as much as I'm focusing on things which are part of the traditions of Christianity, uh, fasting is not, in, in, at least within my 
experience as a Protestant Christian viewed as a sacrament. Prayer is in many ways more ubiquitous than merely a ritual that is performed. Uh, we don't view prayer in, uh, in denominations like United Methodism the same way you would view uh, another sacrament like baptism or Holy Communion. And even within the Roman Catholic tradition, where there are many more other sacraments, prayer is not necessarily viewed as its own unique thing. And pilgrimage doesn't appear at all, really, in anything that I've learned through the Protestant denominations that I have participated in actively. Now, there is a role for it within Catholicism, but that's not really my focus. I think anyone who knows much about Islam would recognize that the three things that I've explored a little bit, at least mentally here within, again, a focus on Christianity, are also three really important factors within Islam. Fasting, connecting to the holy time period of Ramadan for Muslims, and prayer being uh, not just a duty, but an, act an actual strict discipline, much closer to being a ritual, I think you'd probably say, within Islam than it is within Christianity. Uh, Christianity doesn't have set specific times where you're, you're making a crucial mistake and potentially betraying your faith if you are not praying and praying the right way at those times. But the other one is pilgrimage. Here as I'm recording this, ending the summer, very late August, an episode probably going to be released end of August, early September, the very, very latest, it's going to come out ahead of the Hajj in Islam for 2016. And the Hajj is the at least once in a lifetime uh, focus of visiting holy sites in current Saudi Arabia, cities like Mecca and Medina. And this is just something that I have no actual connection with whatsoever. And yet I do have at points and times in my life an experience of pilgrimage, which I'll use as a bridge between the very end of the last walk the earth question, the one focusing on prayer and why prayer is so real to me, and this one. A lot of this, though, came from an online conversation I had years and years ago with uh, someone who is an atheist, but an atheist who shares a lot of, uh, I think, political perspective. I think we probably have a lot more in common than we have not in common, our faith notwithstanding. And even in our experiences of growing up, I, I think probably if you uh, took a snapshot of my life at the age of 15 and a snapshot of this friend's life, both of us probably had spent about the same amount of time participating in the same amount of ways in various church denominations. Things happened in my life which kept me on a course that is different from many, many people, if not most people that I know. Well, the question that he raised online all those years ago was, Christians, why aren't you Muslim? And my response, uh, trying to view everyone with unconditional positive regard, trying, in other words, not to assume that a question that might be viewed as confrontational, therefore has to be confrontational, taking people seriously and at times more seriously than they take themselves, I chose to answer that question. And I don't have the answer sitting right in front of me, but it, my answer was something along the lines of that as a Protestant Christian, I have walked away from Catholicism. I literally, at a point in my life, was at a crossroads where I could have chosen to spend all of my Saturdays and or Sundays participating actively in the Catholic Church and joining that church, or to move in the direction of the United Methodist Church, which is what I did at the time. And sort of that Protestant versus Catholic decision had to be made by, frankly, a kid who was pretty young to be making that decision. It was a pre-confirmation decision, a pre-First Communion decision, if you will. But I did make that. And, and one of the things I was walking away from by going in the Protestant direction was 
a desire on my part to not view tradition and ritual as being equal or at least not even near equal to the weight that I would put on scripture and prayer. In the Wesleyan tradition of United Methodist theology anyway, you've got this notion that faith, reason, prayer, and tradition, that there's an equal footing there for these quadrants in terms of of how you view uh, the, the faith. And I think often, at least at the time, this is the early 70s, probably early to mid 70s, my perspective of Roman Catholicism was the tradition was escalated to where it was not just one of four things which might make up the way you look at things, whether it, uh, it seemed to be trumping, in, in some cases, concepts of faith and scripture and certainly reason. And so I went in a different direction. And in some ways, that reflected the path that I've been on ever since, where I have consistently, all the way back to the very beginning, rejected the legalism of certain forms of Christianity, especially forms of Christianity since the 1800s in America and before that in Great Britain. But also uh, the Judaism that preceded it, that notion of being beholden to a set of laws and laws still being in effect is completely foreign to me, my understanding. And it's answered pretty well and described in some detail in that article at uh, inappropriateconversations.org called Christianity 201, Time for Solid Food, that if I'm not going to follow the legalism of of Judaism, if I'm not going to follow the semi-legalistic devotion to traditions within Catholicism, why in the world would I turn around from my current state as a Protestant Christian and devote myself to some new form of legalism, whether that be um, the way certain factions within evangelical Christianity have fallen back more in love with the law than the Lord, is how I describe it. These folks are more in love with the law than they are with the Lord. But also Islam, which has sort of foundational concepts about submitting, submission to, in some cases, doctrine, but often is not a set of disciplines. And having rejected legalism already a couple of times in my life, I'm very comfortable rejecting legalism another time and bypassing what this person was presenting, sarcastically I imagine, as an opportunity for evangelical Christians to convert to Islam and go ahead and solidify their legalism in the current soup of the day. Now this is not my attitude, but this is the attitude that has been kind of in the back of my mind as I've really been struggling with the fact that fasting is not something I've ever done. And early, early this year, I thought to myself, maybe the right thing to do would be to consider to, if I had a close Muslim friend who lived nearby me geographically, if we were close enough to each other that we would see each other all the time, I would have really strongly considered participating in Ramadan if only to support that friend and to have that spiritual experience. Wouldn't consider it to be in any way betraying my faith because fasting has always been viewed to be part of the Christian faith. It's just part of the faith I struggle with. And, you know, even before, but certainly by the time the middle of the summer kind of kicked in and a lot of the uh, events of the day, not just presidential politics, but also the shooting spree in Orlando and the aftermath of that really left me in a place where I was struggling with prayer. And as I began to think through why I still take prayer so seriously, despite the fact that so many people, self-proclaimed Christians, seem to take it more as a brand statement hashtag praying way more often than they're actually praying, if I were guessing, than uh, than I do. And that pilgrimage is a part of that. So let me go there, 
But as I go there, I want to put a little historical timeline on things and try to provide a sense of perspective. Because I think, again, especially in this political season, and I knew from the start, even middle of 2015, that this year, 2016, especially going in to the months of October and November, was going to be extremely painful. And anybody who has already tuned out the news or stopped answering their phone because they don't want to take another political survey knows what I'm talking about. I guess I would say the problem is that there's probably a lot of people in America who seem to think, like my friend was being sarcastic, that Islam was something somehow brand new and wouldn't we want to jump on the newest, latest trend. Well, anybody who knows me personally or even knows much about me from these podcasts knows that I'm the last person in the world who's likely to jump on the latest trend uh, especially not if jumping on the trend has no other no other thing to recommend it other than being trendy and new. But I am part of a Protestant tradition that goes back to the 1800s. And before that, the church we left behind when this Walk the Earth podcast began was part of a tradition that went back to the 1600s. And the Protestant Reformation, of course, is, was in the 1500s. But that wasn't the first Reformation of what we call Western and Eastern Christianity. In and around the year 1000, and I'm not looking at my textbook, so I don't have that piece of history exactly right, but in and around the year 1000, there was a schism between what we call Eastern and Western Christianity. So in Christianity, if you give the church credit for roughly 900 years to 1000 years of, of harmony, and put harmony in quotes, you have a schism in the year 1000, another schism in the year 1500 that's had a ripple effect of reinventions and, and reinterpretations ever since it. When Islam gets together here next month to celebrate Hajj, the pilgrimage, they're reflecting a tradition that goes back to the year 632, give or take. So early 600s. So we're not really talking about something brand new here. In other words, the distance from us right now to the beginning of Islam isn't that far away from the distance between Jesus and what we consider to be the prophet's period of Judaism. Again, I'm not looking at a textbook. I don't have my dates exactly right. But all of this is a long time ago. And therefore, there really isn't anything new or trendy to play with. Meaning, I don't have an obligation within my my Protestant denomination or even within my Protestant walk to have any sort of pilgrimage in my life. And I certainly don't have any reason to jump on the bandwagon of something new and trendy when it goes back you know, 1,500 years, give or take, which when you think about it, again, anything more than a 1,000 years, you're getting awfully close to Christianity talking about things that happened 2,000 years ago or, uh, you know, Judaism talking about things that are more that 6,000 ballpark. So it would have happened already for me if it was supposed to happen, which I suppose is one of the answers to the question. I mean, it's a three-part question in many ways about what pilgrimage actually is. Is it a visit to a sacred place? Is there something inherently holy about it? Is there any obligation to do it within Christianity as there is within other forms of theism? Or is it just about tapping into history? Or is it truly much more individual than that? And I think to me, the further down this definition goes, the more affirmative the answer becomes. Because I'd be surprised if everyone isn't at least a little bit like me, in the sense that at some point in their life, they have gone to visit a place that was at the very least sacred to just them. And for whatever those reasons were, may may be unbeknownst to anyone else who was there at the time. But I'll get there as I kind of work my way through it. Because the first thing I want to do is sort of kind of dismiss the idea of sacred places. 
I don't get the impression that when you read the New Testament, that Jesus or Paul actually believed that they were laying down historical markers and putting in places where they expected people for future generations to come and to visit. And because of this perception of mine, and yeah, maybe it's accurate, maybe it's not, I, I think it is, and I can give one example, but because of this perspective of mine, I've never been the kind of person who feels like my, my Christian walk is incomplete if I never visit the Holy Land. But I know lots of people who have made trips to modern-day Israel and modern-day Jordan and been really uh, blessed, perhaps even had their spiritual their spirituality enriched by the experience. And who knows, if I were to take a trip like that, I might find that same experience as they're awaiting for me, as it might be awaiting anybody who walks on what some people would consider to be this sort of sacred ground, let you decide whether to put sacred in quotes or not. But for me, I don't feel that. In John chapter 4, when Jesus met the woman at the well at high noon, at a time when most people had decided that uh, they they would have already gotten their water for the day by then. And he was, you know, kind of having a conversation with her about the difference between Samaritans and Jews, among other things. She was very focused on how sacred that place was. That this was Jacob's well and that the Samaritans still claimed Jacob as their forefather and kind of rejected the idea of the Jews of Jesus' time, rejecting them and not seeing that common lineage as crucially important. And Jesus just flat out dismisses, almost bluntly, the idea of there being anything particularly special about that place. And she answers that, well, you Jews say that Jerusalem is where we should worship God. And he says, all of that is nonsense. That God is not about a temple in Jerusalem or a well in Samaria. It's not about place. That you're about to encounter God in a brand new way, a way that literally encompasses every step you take, wherever you take those steps. That strikes me as kind of a dismissive notion of this concept of there being sacred spaces and sacred places where a pilgrimage would make sense for a truly religious reason. Now, I want to be sensitive and continuing to view people in unconditional positive regard and be respectful of folks with other traditions. So I didn't record these three walk-the-earth questions on sort of this uh, summer of struggle idea to take any pot shots at people who were Muslim. Uh, there's plenty of that going on uh, in the political sphere without me, you know, playing any part. No, I come from a, a very opposite perspective. I would like to be respectful enough that I can learn and understand what I need to understand from people whose experiences and whose faith is different from mine. All the same, I don't feel any uh, compelling need to participate. And that is just one reason why, from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. There are others I won't go into. I'm reminded in some ways of, uh, I think it was a 1968 a Luis Buñuel film, a French film made by the famous Spanish director called The Milky Way. And in the course of making this movie, Buñuel's goal was to represent on film, in sort of a road movie of sorts, as many Christian heresies as humanly possible. So he was producing um, scenario after scenario where either a famous historical heretic would appear or a situation would appear that would raise the doctrinal issues around which some of the uh, famous heresies emerged and the answers from the church came to kind of quash those negative or bad ideas. And uh, he named it the Milky Way and said it in order to have in order to have the right kind of journey and have his protagonists encounter all of these things along the way, instead of 
them being in one central place and having all of the events come to them, they were on a pilgrimage to see it's like a sacred burial site of St. James or something like that. I'm not 100% sure of the details. It's been years since I've seen it. But it's enough to say that there is still enough of a concept of pilgrimage within Catholicism, that this isn't strictly a Christianity versus Islam distinction. In other words, my reading of the Bible, my interpretation, and my Protestant perspective leads me to dismiss some things where there's still an active notion among parts, perhaps significant parts of Catholicism, of ideas like relics and icons, saints and pilgrimages. I just choose not to participate. So for me, if the question focused solely on the idea of pilgrimage being about sacred places that need to be visited for religious reasons, well then my answer there is no. But I can't say no to the question about the historical past. My father died, you know, three, well, going on four decades ago now. And he was the first person in my greater family tree to die without a burial. His method, um, chosen method at, at his own request, was cremation. And there was a scattering of cremains, but not in a place where there was a plot of land with a gravestone or anything like that. So I have a very different experience when it comes to the concept of visiting my long-lost father. And I want to be very deferential and understanding of people who make uh, regular, and regular doesn't mean daily, weekly, monthly, but some sort of planned visit to a funeral plot to pay reverence, respect, perhaps even lay flowers at the graveside of, say, a, a long-departed parent. I understand that, but it's outside the realm of my experience. But I do think that has as much to do with historical past and historical human connections, as it does with any ideas of sacred ground or sacred places or religiously ordained pilgrimage. But if you make that, if you just make that distinction and say, well, what if this is just about remembering my history? Well, now I'm much more open to the concept of pilgrimage. Because even though I haven't made a 14-hour drive to stand at the very site where my father's remains were scattered and Doubtless I wouldn't have a really strong feeling about going to visit a graveside if there was a graveside to visit. Uh, it's just, again, maybe this is where I'm, I'm not connected historically with the idea of a personal pilgrimage. I still understand it. I have no qualms whatsoever with people who revisit those times and places. There are times and places in my own personal relationship, my, uh, my most intimate relationship, where there, we've re, we revisit places that were important to us, um, places when we dated, places you know around the time that we got married. Uh, it's unusual for us to go to visit our hometown and not uh, at least consider spending time in the church where we got married. So there's that concept where that makes some sense to me. And really, I do experience a genuine sense of loss that while geographically, from a longitude and latitude perspective, some of the sacred places, the, the location of our first date, for example, does exist. It could be found, but I'm no longer in a position to find it because it was a uh, neighborhood that had been developed to the extent that a lot of the city services had been provided. You know, the, the guttering was in place, the streets were paved, the plumbing was all kind of prepped and set up. But there weren't any houses yet. It was a neighborhood that had been created but had not yet been filled with home development. 
Meaning that it doesn't look anything now like it did then on that first date when we were simply driving around looking for a quiet place to have a picnic and throw a frisbee around. So even though I know that the place is there, the place is not available to me. And even if it were, it wouldn't feel like a pilgrimage because it doesn't have any sort of maintenance of the site as it was. The sacredness of the moment it has been lost to years, probably, of home development. Wouldn't surprise me if over the course of, uh, in this case, maybe 36 plus years, houses have been built on the spot where that picnic occurred, leveled and rebuilt again in the same spot. I mean, it's unlikely, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility. So I know that that's kind of uh, the history of it all. I get it. And that resonates with me. My kids complain jokingly now, of course, but one of those visits to the city where my wife and I went to rival high schools uh, included visiting with her parents and her parents uh, wanting to, her dad wanting to take a drive in the car and show us, my wife and I, the city, but also our kids, all of these important places. And we drove all over this large Midwestern city, looking at everything from where each one of us went to high school and he, where each one of us went to junior high and where each one of us went to elementary school and, you know, all places where we went to church and all this other sort of stuff. I'm sure our kids are like, yeah, it's just, yeah, that's just another house. That house means nothing to me. The fact that there's no longer a tree in that front yard means nothing, well, it meant nothing to anybody except me, not even my wife or my wife's father. But that's an idea of this historical sort of quote, you know, lowercase p pilgrimage, quote unquote. And that makes sense, but I'm not sure that it carries a religious significance. It certainly isn't mandated. You could understand somebody who had a childhood that was sufficiently troubling, never making any sort of pilgrimage to where they grew up. I mean, if you were mercilessly bullied to the point of contemplating suicide in junior high school. Why would you ever want to drive by that place again? So I guess history cuts both ways, I guess might be the way I'd word it. In the uh, in the eyes of a Muslim believer, the sense of anticipation would be wholly positive on a visit to Mecca and Medina in the context of that annual event and opportunity. And so that's that's a very different thing from history. Where you roll the dice, you take your chances. And there are some places in my hometown where I've got good, good memories and some places where I've got bad memories. And it's funny that even some of the bad ones have been paved over. I remember an inappropriate conversation show. I named it Raised on Robbery, where I talked about being the victim of an armed robbery while at work. But that movie theater where that robbery occurred isn't a movie theater anymore. So even when you drive by the place where parts of that building probably structurally still exist, but the space has since been repurposed for some other use, whether office or educational or something else, you can't really go by and point to it and say, well, this is a visit to that part of my history. That trip a few years ago, probably more like four years now, that uh, we're taking at the time, kids who uh, were either right at the beginning of college or not yet ready to even pick a college, we were looking at some of those spots, and it just seemed like... More often than not, what I remember had been has, has been gone. It's just not there anymore. Meaning that maybe the question of pilgrimage, at least from my own personal perspective, is just that. Maybe it's well and truly individual. Maybe it only makes sense in the context of my walk. And has that become so dismissive of the idea to say that, well, the pilgrimage really isn't a real thing? I suspect that's probably not true. That... If there is some connection to place or place and time that's so powerful that you wouldn't want to go to this part of the country without taking an hour's drive to see this particular place 
and to experience being in that spot again, even if there was nothing religious about it, and even if there was nothing well and truly historical about it, if it's meaningful enough to you as a person to make that two-hour-plus round trip, well, then it can't be nothing, and it can't be meaningless, especially if one of the places that I visited, not even you know a year and a half ago now, in this exact context, has a lot to do with what I shared at the end of the last Walk the Earth, has a lot to do with answered prayer. And because I could, I chose to at least drive by the place where that prayer was answered. That's actually a true statement. And the relationship that was the focus of that moment in time also led me to drive by and see, well, hey, is the apartment where this friend of mine lived, is that still there? Is that still standing? And no, it wasn't. But so sometimes you take the drive and the thing that you wanted to look at has now become a parking lot, (laughs) become part of the university, as it will. Because these stories for me happened while I was in college, while I was attending university. But some of them are still there. The apartment that I lived in on the first floor, facing the alley of that particular small set of apartment buildings, uh, I want to say maybe 16 units tops, was still there, as was the other side of that same complex, where my wife, during her senior year in college, had the apartment at the top of the stairs on the opposite side. So we did take the drive and go to see that, in the context of saying, well, hey, we're here, and we want to have dinner, and maybe we should have dinner at one of the places we liked to eat at all those years ago. There's the sacrament of shared food and drink, where particular food and particular drink may not be just unleavened bread and wine or grape juice. It can be anything. But the sacrament of shared food and drink is also just as real for me in my personal walk as it is in the context of a ritual within a religion. We went to that specific restaurant and knowing, finding out when we got there that one of the drinks that we drank on the you know two weekends after the big Revelation weekend thing that I talked about, where God kind of said, it's okay to speak, I need you to speak. Well, they were serving that drink as well. It had made a comeback for whatever reason. So we said, well, let's, let's have that too. And to me, that was really important. The trip wouldn't have been the same without it. And I have a, I have a hard time, I guess I have a struggle, describing the reality of that moment as anything other than some sort of pilgrimage. Because for me, Something sacred and personal happened in that place all those years ago, almost coming up on 30 years ago. And to be in that place again meant something, maybe just personally. I mean, I certainly wouldn't argue that everybody who shares my particular faith perspective should make a journey to the heart of the heart of the country and spend some time driving down this alley past this apartment complex that sits two blocks from the university. No, I'm not going to be proscriptive about this. On the other hand, I wonder, I guess, is the question I would ask, does anybody else anybody else have these moments? Is there a park or a public swimming pool in the city where you grew up in some crucial part of your formative years where driving past that particular part of town, especially if you don't live there and it doesn't become a glib day-to-day thing, is that meaningful in a way that can't be dismissed as simply your personal history? There's something more important about it. The words I've used for these moments of friendship, which ring a bell much more clearly for me in my life than casual acquaintanceship could ever do, 
is sacred history. Yes, it's, it's still history, and it's still an encounter of two souls, but it's an encounter of two souls where the world sort of stops for a minute, and you realize that something's going on there that's bigger than just random chance encounter, and that it also doesn't fall within a dating sexual marital paradigm either, because sometimes that chance encounter of two people is uh, two people who aren't sexually attracted to each other, either because of where they stand from a gender identification and sexual preference, but maybe even within the context of people who otherwise would be attracted to each other. It's not that same thing. That what's the, the heart of that is a different thing. And I usually just sort of try to describe that, not with concepts that we don't even really embrace much anymore, platonic. Most people don't even have the first idea of how you'd actually put pen to paper and write down exactly what that means. To me, sacred history has a different kind of a meaning. When trying to explain this to people, which I may do, inappropriate conversations have planned for this year, a revisiting of the concept of sacred friendship, and I've deferred it to later, maybe even pushed it all the way out into a future calendar year. So I don't know that this is going to be a repeat. I'm not going to be previewing a future episode of Inappropriate Conversations. But it might be worth offering a little bit of a definition because it is the one thing that ties together this question of what is pilgrimage to me with this question of why do I still so firmly believe in prayer despite how badly it's been abused and misdefined here in uh, the last year or so. Uh, and misdefined not by people who are hostile toward Christianity and looking to debunk it or undermine it, but by people who claim to be Christians who are more interested in taking subtle, passive-aggressive potshots against gay and lesbian people, for example, than they are in dealing directly and honestly with their own perspectives on things which, frankly, ought to be examined. Ought to be examined right at the point of struggling. So if I can connect prayer and pilgrimage into this one idea... What's the best way to describe it? And I often describe it using some lyrics from a Joni Mitchell song called A Case of You. That's my go-to way of describing it. The specific line she wrote is, I remember the time that you told me. You said love was touching souls. Well, surely you touched mine, because part of you pours out of me in these lines from time to time. That idea of love is touching souls, that... Two people can come into contact with each other, whether accidentally or in a planned, sort of intentional way. And that point of contact could be nothing more than purely physical. Or it doesn't have to be physical at all. One of the things the internet age has taught me, anyway, and taught me pretty clearly since uh, at least 2006, but really more 2009 and beyond, is, is the time frame I would talk about, is that you can have no physical contact with someone whatsoever and still in many ways be touching minds to make that kind of parallel. Then instead of shaking hands in a physical, literal way, there's some shaking of hands in a metaphorical sort of a way. That again, I feel pretty good saying that that's, that's as much about touching minds as it is about touching souls. I live maybe an hour and a half at the most away from this friend who years ago asked the question, hey, Christians, why aren't you all Muslim by now? We've never met, never seen him face to face. But doesn't really matter. And I don't know that I would have understood that 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I definitely wouldn't have understood it. But now in this era of social media, it kind of makes sense. Neither one of those things, though, is the same idea as touching souls. 
And often, I think touching souls can't be, it can't be planned. You know, you can decide you're going to engage in an intellectual discourse with someone. And maybe, if that works out the way you hope it will, you're engineering a moment of touching minds. Uh, physical contact is a whole other thing. I mean, that, that seems like the most easy and obvious to me. A hookup, for want of a better word, is nothing more than one or two people, hopefully two people, consensually deciding that it's time to be touching physically in that, in that way. But even in the realm of friendship, you know, there's that physical connection of uh, being part of a sports team, for example, where that's a physical contact that typically drives what it means to go through a, a shared experience, a shared set of goals, a shared set of uh, events striving toward those goals. That's physical. But to me, this concept of touching souls, it doesn't get engineered. It it often surprises, I guess would be the way I would word it, where I sort of didn't see that coming. <laughs> it's probably kind of the best way to describe it. And yet the reason I feel that way, I guess, is because I actually probably, and I don't feel like now's the time to talk about it, but I've probably gone on pilgrimages of sorts where the history wasn't going to be sacred. And that for whatever reason, I thought that might be, this might be a very important and significant thing. And the beginning of uh, a lifetime of shared ideas, shared thoughts, shared faith, that just didn't work out. There's an Inappropriate Conversations episode, number 79, released very late in January in 2012, that describes some of this to some degree. It, it just means that touching souls can't be planned, can't be engineered. And even when it feels like it might be happening, that also doesn't mean that that's necessarily going to play out the way you think. The Lord works in mysterious ways, I guess, is the cliche that you hear about it. But I, I won't go into more detail there. Um, if this seems like a strange segue, the rest of the story has probably been recorded, you know, four plus years ago on an Inappropriate Conversations podcast. That's probably the best way to seek it out. For me, it's enough to say that even though I don't feel any more obligation to engage in pilgrimage than I do to engage in fasting. And even as I view prayer as truly voluntary, but that's enough for me because I still voluntarily do it and have really good reasons for voluntarily doing it. The lack of obligation, the lack of, of a sacrament or a ritual built around pilgrimage doesn't change the fact that it still happens. It doesn't change the fact that when it happens and as it happens, it's probably on some level even if it's just a very personal, me-and-you-God kind of level, a sacred, sacred space. If and as you are led, please join me in prayer. Jesus, I know that we, we often call upon you to guide our steps, but I want to be very careful about the risk of putting words in your mouth, crediting you with ideas that are merely my own. And yet it does feel very real to me from time to time when I know that I'm standing at the location of a place of sacred history, especially if it's not sacred in name only, but if it really was one of those moments where I felt you were very near and you were calling the shots, if you will. You know me, Jesus, and you know that on more than one occasion I have visited the very place that I experienced answered prayer revisiting that moment from February 7th, 1987, and doing so intentionally. It's not the kind of road I would ever be able to drive down accidentally, being a, 
an alley in the middle of an extremely small Midwestern town, nowhere near where I live. But Jesus, I also believe that you guide the steps that lead me to what the future sacred places will be. So as I try to be open about the things that I'm struggling with, but also open-minded about the fact that things don't have to be neat and tidy and perfectly proscribed, that there's something almost random about the most important moments in my past walk with you, Lord. And I'm expecting that there'll be other moments that are seemingly to others around me random and insignificant, that it is my prayer that as I continue to live this life, you will continue to find ways to set some of those milestones along our path. It's not a walk if there's no milestones along the way. Uh, so far, Lord, it's been the scenic route. And I thank you for that and praise you for that. And ask your forgiveness if I'm supposed to attach some sort of significance to more events than I do. And to view any of these as being more sacramental than I do. It's something that I've missed, if that's if that's true, and I would need to have it called to my attention. In your holy name I pray. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. Next, on Walk the Earth, whether both sons are lost in the parable of the prodigal son. Thanks for listening. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.